This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 145, John Murray Climbing Mount Rainier. Hi friends, this is Kurt. Before we dive into today's show, which is going to be fantastic, it's uh, all about climbing Mount Rainier with John Murray. It's really awesome. But before we dive into that, two quick announcements. First, our business plan for the Adventure Sports Podcast, what allows our podcast to continue to bring you great content, amazing interviews with fabulous guests. The business plan is based on running paid ads on the show. If you would like to run an ad on the Adventure Sports Podcast, by all means, contact us. Go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click the Contact Us button. But also, as a listener, you can really help us. We need to be able to put together a picture of the demographics for our listeners so that potential advertisers know what they're buying. And so we have a quick survey, literally takes about two minutes, that helps us to identify four potential advertisers who you guys are. It would mean a lot to me and for the show if you could go to adventuresportspodcast.com, click the survey button, and just take the quick survey. It's all anonymous, of course, and it really helps us out. So thank you for that. Second announcement, the College Ambassador Program. I want to flesh that out a little bit for you. Um, We've been getting some responses. Thank you very much to those of you who have responded. If you are a college student on a college campus, we want to be able to reach out to people that love adventure sports on your campus. And to do that, we would like to make it worth your while to represent the Adventure Sports Podcast. This isn't a huge time commitment. What we're really looking for is someone who can pass out some stickers, post some flyers, And if you have other ideas of unique ways to introduce people to our show on the campus, then we will make sure it's worth your while to do that. And we thank you for taking part in that program. So college students, once again, Adventure Sports Podcast, click the Contact Us button. Thank you very much. And now on with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today I have John Murray with us, and John grew up with his dad in the Navy, traveled around a lot, and it gave him an opportunity to try a lot of different things, and he's a guy after my own heart. He loves adventure sports of all kinds. He is a backpacker. He loves mountain biking, snowboarding. He likes to do freestyle jet ski on a stand-up jet ski. He sails. He uh, he scuba dives, spear fishing, mountaineering, hunting, rock climbing, motorcycle riding. I mean, if it's adventurous, John does it. Today, we're going to focus primarily on mountaineering because he did Mount Rainier, and I want to hear that story. So, John, welcome to the program. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me, Kurt. John, you live in a great place for adventure sports. You said you're about an hour south of Seattle, so that Pacific Northwest coast up there is amazing with the Cascades and the volcanoes. And, man, you've got the ocean, you've got the mountains, you've got everything. What's it like? 
Yeah, it is awesome. I mean, typically when we're trying to decide where to go, you know, we basically have the uh, Olympics to the west or the Cascades to the right. Uh, we got we got all kinds of coastal waters to sail and navigate. We got the rainforest. Um, you can hunt over there uh, in the whole rainforest. And we have, of course, the big mountain, Mount Rainier. And then we got Baker up north. And then we got uh, Mount St. Helens down south. And, of course, uh, Mount Adams and so I've been up to pretty much all those mountains, and I've hiked in uh, both mountain ranges extensively. And uh, I just, I just love living up here. I just enjoy it. My son asked me just this week, "How tall was Mount St. Helens before it blew its top?" And I, I didn't look it up. I started to and got distracted. But do you know what's the difference? Um, geez, yeah, I think because I climbed that one in December, it was like eighty nine hundred. I think is where it's at right now. And before that, I think it was like around eleven thousand. So it lost. About 2,000 feet. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Um, but I'd have to look that up myself, too. It sounds about right. I tell you what, I remember when that happened, and uh, it blew my mind. That that was such a huge event. It's just crazy. I'll bet it's beautiful now, though. It is, yeah. it's um, my. I think it happened in the eight, 1980, if I remember right. And uh, I was born in 83, so I think I missed that one. Uh, but my father-in-law, he was uh, around when all that was going on, and he was actually going to school in uh, central Washington. And he said that it was, during the day, he was just out there, um, you know, in the middle of the day playing, I don't know, shooting basketball or something, and it just went pitch black wow. as, the, as the ash and clouds rolled in. And it was just as dark as night in the middle of the day, and he just said it was so odd. Wow. Yeah, I watched it on television, and I was, um, I don't know, about 12 years old or something like that. So it uh, it was in a major, major event, and it's really cool to see how nature has recovered since then. Mm-hmm. And what just amazes me is what a quick change it was to the landscape. So, But yeah, let's absolutely. talk a little bit more about some of these adventure sports. So um, before we dive into Rainier, why do you backpack? Why do you climb? Well, so yeah, my, my parents were, um, my dad was in the Navy and so I had, uh, three other siblings and basically anytime we moved from one state to another, we would take our camping trailer and we would basically hit all these campgrounds on the way. And so I just loved, you know, going around the campground and playing and, you know, making spears and exploring, you know, with my brothers and sisters and, and, uh, I always like camping, but um, we never got really out of the campsite. And I always wanted to, you know, you look and see all these guys up in these mountains, and I always wanted to be that guy and, you know, and kind of experience that. And so it wasn't until I was old enough and, you know, could kind of drive myself to the mountains and, you know, go buy some of my own gear I needed uh, that I started to do that. And man, that was a learning curve and a half. So. Um, yeah, basically, uh, I was bringing camping gear to the mountains and that was a huge mistake. <laughs> Little too heavy, not quite right. Right. I mean, the sleeping bag is as big as a backpack and everything weighs five to 10 pounds a piece. <laughs> so right. yeah, I had to learn a lot and I didn't read any books on it. I just wanted to do it and I just thought, oh, I've done camping. So, okay, well, I'll bring a little stove and I'll bring a sleeping bag and I'll bring this and that. And, uh, yeah, I, I had it all wrong. So that that was a big, big uh, lesson for me in that area. Well, it sounds to me like you've kind of turned into a gear junkie. You mentioned that it's a, a real passion of yours now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I go in my garage right now, I got, you know, down sleeping bags, synthetics, mummies, rectangulars. Um, you know, I got uh, 
different degrees sleeping bags, different weight sleeping bags for different, you know, downfill amounts from 650 to, you know, 950 and different stoves and all kinds of pots and pans and titanium and stainless steel and aluminum and, you know, different types of packs from ultra lightweight to mountaineering packs to, you know, just everything that, um, I think if you're a gear junkie, you'd probably have like me. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. You know, we don't dive deep into gear a lot on the show, although we do like to, to get some recommendations from our guests. Um, but gear is part of the fun, isn't it? It is, yes. Absolutely. And I want to tell our, our guests here, the way that I met John, actually, is he bought one of our uh, Natrafuel backpacking stoves that he had been using, and he had a question about it, so he had emailed us, and we started talking, and next thing you know, I said, man, you got to be on our on our show, because you're, you're a a true adventure man. So that's how we met. So John, you've been using a stove that we discontinued, the 180VL, right? Yeah, right. That's correct. So for those of you who don't know, I'm going to throw in this advertisement here, John. Um, The 180VL was about six ounces and uh, it was a natural fuel stove. So you could burn twigs, grass leaves. It folded up into a case that was about three inches by six inches and really light. Um, we replaced that one with the 180 flame that you hear us talking about sometimes, which has similar weight and dimensions, but it has a, a better design for airflow. So it burns better and packs down into an even smaller case, about three by four inches. And I, I mean, it can fit in a small pocket. So those are some of the things that we at 180 TAC offer. And of course, you can find those by going to adventuresportspodcast.com or to 180TAC.com. But, um, John is one of the customers, so thanks for doing that, John. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoy that product, and I definitely was looking for an alternative to uh, just if you're bringing a canister stove and you're trying to save some fuel um, to be able to have something that you could you could basically you know cook on. So that that definitely fit the bill. Yeah, that's fun. But here's a question for you: If you're packing a pack to go climb Mount Rainier, what are you packing? What am I packing? Um, well, I'm packing a lot of things. So you're going to incorporate, um, basically, uh, you're, you're going to be in definitely cold weather. So you have to have all your cold weather gear. You're going to be uh, on Glacier if you're up on the up on Rainier. So you're going to need all your, basically, harnesses, your, um, your ice axe, your crampons, uh, basically all your ice and glacier gear, your your glacier glasses, you're going to need a uh, climbing helmet, you're going to need, you know, goggles, you're going to need um, the carabiners and the prussics and the rope for a crevasse rescue, or for a um, crevasse rescue. Um, and then you're going to need, of course, all the food, all the calories you're going to burn. I learned a, I learned that you don't burn around 6,000 calories a day, but more around 12,000 calories a day. So I was definitely short on food supply there. But uh, you're going to be bringing your white gas stove uh, for, for turning snow into water. And you're going to be bringing, of course, your your uh, your probably your heavy down sleeping bag, your uh, mountaineering tent. Everything is just going to be heavy. And uh, you just got to lug that up the mountain until you can get to base camp. And uh, so... Um, that's just basically some of the gear you're going to bring in a nutshell. And I could go much more into detail on that, but, um, yeah, you're going to have, you're going to have the, the, that gear basically to, to get you up there and down. One of the reasons why I ask that question is because it illustrates that this isn't just a mountain climb like we would normally do in Colorado. So people that climb the Colorado 14ers, it's generally a day hike. They don't have to take all the gear for, for camping overnight. And in addition to that, they're generally not on glaciers. So leave the ice axe, the crampons, the ropes, the carabiners, you know, the Prusik, all that stuff. 
can stay home on almost all the mountains. Yeah, and that adds quite a bit of weight to your pack when oh, uh, yeah. when you're thinking about bringing any of that stuff. So the 14ers in Colorado, um, most of them are simply a hike. There are there are several. I would say probably 20 percent where you're going to use your hands and feet. But you don't have to rope up, although it is advisable to rope up on some of them. But that mm-hmm. that's what a lot of people think about when they think of climbing mountains in Colorado. Mm. Rainier is a different story. Rainier right, is yeah. when, okay, this is a true expedition climb. And once you get all the gear and the knowledge to do Rainier, then you can advance to a lot of other mountains. Yeah, it's very technical. And once you get that one under your belt, um, a lot of the other ones seem to be a lot more simplistic as far as planning goes and logistics and um, your, your confidence goes way up in, in climbing these uh, these other mountains that aren't as technical. Um, they just kind of feel more like a breeze. So um, I'm, I'm glad to have had that one under my belt now. Yeah, that's awesome. I've not done Rainier. It is on my do list. I'd like to do it someday. But that's why I wanted to have you come and tell us about it. Before we dive into the specifics, though, it sounds like you love your adventure sports. Why would you encourage people to climb Rainier? Oh, man. Well, yeah, Rainier is a... I don't know if I would encourage people to climb Rainier. Uh, I mean, it's quite dangerous. So um, as long as you can mitigate that danger with with all the experience and knowledge that you're going to learn all along the way to getting to that point or going with a guided service... Um, I mean, just the preparation to be able to do that, for one, you got to be physically fit. So, I mean, that's going to tie into the rest of your life uh, as far as, um, you know, not, not everything else you do in life requires you to be physically fit. So I, I think that's a bonus. And, you know, a lot of the stuff as far as being able to rescue people, tying knots are always useful, whether you're taking something down to the dump or you're, you know, tying something for your kid outside, like a rope swing, you know, you're going to use the right knot. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot to that. And then of course it's going to teach you a lot about, I would say probably world travel because you're going to, you're, you're having to bring select gear and you have some very specific knowledge, whether it's about, um, you know, helping somebody out medically or survival, it's just going to help. Uh, I would think if you were out, out and about in the world or some sort of natural disaster happened, you're going to have that skill set, that survival skill set that's not really in the all-American sports or, you know, in other hobbies that people are doing. So I think it, I think it really uh, comes full circle and, and just kind of helps you out in all areas of your life. I think that's true for adventure sports in general, and it probably doesn't matter so much what the sport is, but it gives life an, an added dimension. And, you know, there's all the, the skills that we learn that translate back to life. But I think the biggest thing that it seems to be the common element for all of these sports is what we learn about ourselves, our confidence yep. levels, how to manage in, in difficult situations and, you know, things like that that go back to everyday life and just make a huge difference in how we live each day. Yeah, it's true. I mean, in, in especially when you're wearing these technical mountains, uh, I mean, you're, if you're playing basketball with your friends and you get hurt, that's fine. But I mean, if you get hurt on these big mountains, you might be facing life or death, you know, situations where you got to make judgment calls, and that's really going to be, you know, paramount in you know your decision making, and and that's where I think the critical decision making skill sets come into play, and I think that's stuff that you learn, and it, it, that I think it's it's just far superior to again, like I said, all those other sports that you're doing because. You know, you're trying to win, but it's not necessarily life or death at certain times. Right. Yeah. The the urgent care and the, the car to get you there are not just in the driveway and around the corner, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Get, get a, a minor injury could be very 
can, problematic and can be a, an emergency uh, up on those mountains as opposed to you know getting hurt getting hurt on just you know a regular trailer or something like that you know that's a really good point i think a lot of people forget that until enough experience you know teaches them that lesson i i have quit taking as many risks when i'm deep into the wilderness just because you know if i'm close to help i don't mind getting hurt but if i get hurt seven or eight or ten miles in wow that's a different story yeah absolutely so hey will you tell us a story about an amazing mountaineering experience uh, that really hooked you on it, said, yeah, this is what I want to do. So what was the weather like? What were you doing? You know, what what was the day like? And, and tell us how that impacted you. Um, I would say what got me hooked was the first time I was trying to go out and do an overnighter in the snow. And I was in college and I was over at um, Washington State University and one of the mountains over there is Moscow Mountain, which is in Idaho. And this one actually was going well. And then I think it went really wrong because, um, you know, I looked over a couple pieces of gear and um, I had done a couple that I, you know, I, I did very, that turned out very well. And, and so then I decided, okay, let's try the snow. So it was probably five degrees out during the day. So it was pretty cold. And the elevation was probably around 5,000 feet. And I don't remember if this was the east or west summit, but it has two different summits. And I went up with a with a group of guys, and I think there's just three other three other guys, and we all had one man tents, and we all had our own packs, and we basically set up camp. And I had a negative five degree sleeping bag, and I was very proud of that because I couldn't afford anything, and I thought this synthetic negative five degree sleeping bag was just going to be awesome in the snow conditions. So I set it up, and I didn't have a, uh, a sleeping pad, so there's no basically protection between my sleeping bag and the, and the ground or the snow. <laughs> And so, you know, we uh, we get ready to honker down. We try to build a fire on the snow, which sinks in like four feet and uh, burns out. Um, finally, we go to bed, and I am freezing. I just cannot stop shivering, and I'm not – I can't – I don't know why I'm so cold other than my butt and my shoulders are so cold. So I take my gloves off, and I stick them underneath my butt to kind of prop me off the, off the snow a little bit. And then that's when I realized, holy cow, I don't have a sleeping pad, and I guess – they are a necessity in this type of, uh, you know, uh, terrain. And so when I came down from that climb, I was like, okay, um, time to get a sleeping pad. I don't really think I even had a sleeping pad at the time, but um, definitely made an investment in that. And after I had done that climb, I, I just, I liked being out in the environment and uh, being, you know, in the peace and quiet and being just with your buddies or whoever you're with and um, just, taking it back like a hundred years in technology, so to speak. So it, it, it just was a great experience in the fresh air and, and being able to explore and being able to use some of those skill sets that you don't always get to use in everyday life. And I think that one really got me hooked and wanted me to just keep pressing on and doing more and more and more. You know what I like about your answer there, John? And it's one that I've not heard from a guest yet. It You alluded to, it opened up a world of learning. You realized there's a lot more to this. I should know about this. And there's other things I'm going to learn. And that was what was kind of exciting then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I would say any climb I do, it's definitely a learning experience. It's not just, uh, okay, well, I've done, you know, certain climbs and certain mountains. I got it under my belt, you know, because the weather's always different. The group's always different. Um, it Everything changes. So you're always learning and you're always getting better. And, and that's what I really like. It's just sort of the never ending quest of excellence.
Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hand on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. Hey River Rats, you've heard nature photographer John Fielder discuss Colorado's free-flowing Yamper River on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Now get the 150 scenic and historic pictures behind the words. John's latest coffee table book guides you from its headwaters in the Flat Tops Wilderness to the confluence with the Green River and Dinosaur National Monument. Visit johnfielder.com for more about the book or get your copy now at amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite independent Colorado book retailer. Once again, that book is Colorado's Yampa River, free-flowing and wild from the flat tops to the green. You know what's funny about this? Here's just another example. I've been doing winter camping for, boy, 20 years. And we do snow caves. We've done just, you know, four-season tents. We do all sorts of things. We've skied in. We've snowshoed in. Regardless, there's so many variations of ways to do it. But it wasn't until more one of my more recent trips that I heated up water and poured it in my water bottle and took it into my sleeping bag with me. Oh, yeah. No, I've definitely done that. Um, you know, I don't know why I went 20 years before I tried that trick. Holy yeah, cow. I don't know. I mean, that happens. I think that happens to everybody, though. You know, you're... You're just out and about, and you have somebody else in the group, and you see them do something different, and you're like, hey, I wish I would have known about that 20 years ago. (laughs) Exactly right. Man, what a difference that makes. So there's a great tip. Do you have other tips or tricks that people should know about for mountaineering or winter camping or things like that? Well, gosh, my sister had a really good quote. She said, pack light, you'll be cold at night um, for winter camp, but... um, for all camps, I don't know, I guess the biggest thing that I've ever done uh, to make the trip more enjoyable was just weighing everything. You, then you kind of really know really what one object weighs and, and whether or not, okay, well, could I use a different object uh, to accomplish that or, or would this piece of equipment accomplish two different tasks, you know, and so you start making those decisions and in, in ounces and pounds, um, it, you're basically going to end up having a lighter pack. And there's a pro and con to that, of course, which is, you know, the lighter the pack, um, the the easier the trip is. But, you know, your skills are going to be required to make that camp um, successful. Now, if you got a really heavy pack, the trip itself might not be that great. But you're going to be the guy at campsite who's got his own chair, his own hammock, his own tent, and he's got his radio, and he's got everything. But, you know, he was 
struggling all the way up the mountain. So there's sort of that trade off. Um, but yeah, I would just say Wayne everything. That was that was one of the big things I learned uh, to try to make the trips more enjoyable. So I kind of think that most backpackers have the one thing that's kind of heavy, but they say, no, no, this one's worth it. I'm bringing it anyway. What is that for you? Oh, wow. Um, what would that be? Uh, I've pretty much tried to slash everything um, because I'll, I'll change my hikes. Like I might go for a hike and I'll say, you know, I'm going to do, do a hammock uh, backpacking trip this time. So, of course, if you do the hammock, you're bringing the underquilt and, of course, the top quilt. So that's a little bit heavier than bringing maybe just, a, you know, a tarp and, um, and just a sleeping bag with a, with a uh, sleeping pad. But I don't know. I, I don't know what my one heavy piece of gear is. Um, I pretty much – I have so much different gear to select from, so I kind of make these sort of uh, challenges for myself, whether I'm going to do a backpacking trip or I'm going to do just a bushcraft trip where we're going to bring minimal gear and we're going to have to make some sort of natural shelter or – we're going to go and we're going to bring, you know, full on gear and, and just have a, you know, a really cozy campsite because we're bringing, bringing our, our wives out or something like that. So it changes all the time. I couldn't say what that one heavy piece of gear would be. Yeah. No, it, it's something to think about. For me, it's, it's been the bed pad and, you know, you can sleep on the ground without a pad in the summer, not in the winter, but, mm-hmm. um, and you save some weight and stuff like that. But for me, I thought, you know what? A good night's rest goes a long way. I'm, I'm willing to carry the extra weight for that. Yeah, I agree with you there. I would say, cause I got, I got different thicknesses and, you know, the foam pads and the inflatable pads. And I guess I, I include that as just sort of my core gear cause I love having a good sleep. You know, that's what I'm up in the mountains. I'm enjoying myself. I want to sleep well. I'm not trying to have a rock in my side, but, um, I guess that could, I could, I could, I could agree with that. And I have a pad that weighs about two pounds and it's, you know, four inches thick and it's cozy as could be. So I don't know if I'd want to give that one up all the time. <laughs> that sounds nice. Well, you know what? Let's get into Rainier specifically. Um, we touched on it, but tell us what a climb up Rainier is like. Okay, so my climb was probably different for other people who may have climbed it or might want to climb it. So just to start out, um, I was in the hospital for a week with uh, the runs. I had drank bad water. I lost about 10 pounds. And my buddy called me when I was in the hospital. He says, hey, you want to climb Rainier in a month? And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. So... <laughs> After I got out of the hospital, three weeks from then, we basically started the climb. Uh, didn't train hardly at all for it. I was basically trying to get my weight back up. And all I could do was stretch uh, and kind of get limber, and that's all I really did. So the climb itself, I live about two hours away from the mountain and basically packed all my own gear from all my own knowledge. And then my buddy, uh, who had climbed at five times previous, uh, he came over and he kind of checked all my gear out made sure I had everything I needed and wasn't missing anything. And so uh, we had it packed up, and off we went. So you, we started out at Paradise. We climbed it in uh, September, at, at the end of September. So the weather was phenomenal. It was a really hot year that year. And so they had a lot more snow melt. And um, you basically start out at Paradise, and it's about you gain about 5,000 feet elevation over the course of five miles. And uh, you basically are hiking up to Camp Mir. And a lot of people will do that as a day hike. They'll go up, they'll come down and, you know, eat lunch up top and, and ski down or, or walk back down, what have you. And, of course, uh, when you're going to climb the mountain, you're bringing your mountaineering pack. And my pack at the time, I was trying to incorporate some ultra ultra lightweight techniques into that uh, scenario. And so my pack weight ended up being 55 pounds. And uh, we were climbing in just shorts and a T-shirt with our mountaineering boots on, um, going up to Camp Mir. And we got up there, 
around, uh, I don't know, one o'clock, I think. We were just kind of taking our time. The thing about the mountain, which I really hated and didn't want to really convert to, was you have to go to bed very early because you have to get up about midnight to start the climb. And when, when you go out backpacking, I mean, I just want to enjoy myself. I want to, that's my day to sleep in up on the mountains. You know, I don't have any sort of specific criteria. I got to get up super early to make the next, you know, the, the next target mile or whatnot. So I'm going out there to enjoy myself. So that was a hard one to do. But needless to say, we get up there, we're setting our camp up. And, um, when there's not snow hazard, there's rock hazard on that mountain. So the fact that there was little snowpack that year, I mean, the, the mountain's always moving. There's always rocks falling, um, and you would see it. They would be close to you. You'd hear it at night. And it was a little unnerving. So basically, Camp Mirror, we set up. We're, you know, taking our snow, making water, eating, getting ready for bed. I think we go to bed around 7 p.m. Our, our plan was to get up about midnight or so, start, you know, cooking our food and making water and, uh, you know, start getting your cold weather gear on and getting your summit pack on, get your harness on. Uh, get clipped into the ropes, um, have your crevasse rescue um, prussics ready, have that tucked away in your pockets, have your headlamp on, you got your mountaineering um, climbing helmet on, you have your uh, ice axe in hand, and it's all it's all lanyard to you. Your gloves are lanyard onto your hands because, you know, God forbid you take your glove off at some point and it, it blows away. You know, that would be a very bad situation to be in. So everything's pretty much clipped in to you. Even your pack is clipped onto you. Um, so if you take it off, it's still clipped into your harness. So um, we get up about one in the morning, I think, um, and uh, we start cooking and, and getting ready. Uh, and, you know, you look up at night and there's a bunch of other guided tours uh, going up. And it just looks like ants in darkness just going up this mountain. The, the group size was just myself, Jeff, and George. So there's only three of us. And um, you do need a permit to climb past Mir. So, of course, we had already had that. Um, so we're all geared up. And the weather was, there was, there was basically no wind. It, it was, it was uh, perfect conditions on Mir. And uh, we basically start making our way from uh, Camp Mir to the Ingraham Flats Glacier. So, of course, as soon as you leave Mir, you better be roped in. Jeff was the, uh, the lead climber. So he's the strongest climber. And uh, they're always in front. And the weakest climber is always in the middle, which happened to be me, just due to the fact that it was my first time up the mountain. And, of course, I was just recently out of the hospital. And then, of course, the last guy in the rope is the anchor man, And he's basically uh, there to help. If, if somebody starts falling, you know, you're going to basically self-arrest and hope to God that everything sticks. So uh, we're making our way across Ingraham Blatt's Glacier. It's pitch black. You're, you, you can hardly see left or right. You look, you look right. Your headlamp just disappears into the darkness as you try to look down along, you know, some ridge or something you're walking along. And it's a little unnerving. Um, and you're going from rock to ice to rock to ice on these crampons. And it, I always tell people it's like you're walking in stilettos, which I haven't done, but I would just imagine <laughs> it's like walking in stilettos, uh, because you're, you got these, you know, two inch, you know, steel prongs um you're trying to balance on top of this loose rock and it's shifting and you know you're trying not to sprain your ankle and then even the ice is uh sometimes breaks and you punch through or or sometimes you're um you know you'll slip a little bit every now and then even with the crampons on so we're making our way across ingerham flats glacier and it is a sort of a dangerous spot because you're walking over there could be you know crevasses below you that are covered by snow that you can't see and then uh, just above you was the ice field or the ice wall. 
And so they're basically huge towers of seracs, which are basically just ice formations that could, they're like pillars and they could fall over at any time or a piece could break off and just come right down your way and, and, and just crush you or knock you into a crevasse. And so as we keep ascending the mountain, Ingraham Fletch Glacier is around 11,000 feet. And uh, as you keep ascending, it keeps, of course, getting colder. And the goal is you want to be at the summit right as the sun's coming up because you want everything frozen in place while you're climbing. Enjoy the sunrise, I should say. Have a little bit of food and then cruise on back down. Well, one of the big things that we were focusing on was going slow and doing what's called compression breathing, which not everybody does because 50% of all attempts to uh, summit Rainier fail due to altitude sickness and weather. So the weather was sort of in our favor and, of course, altitude sickness could, could come to anybody. It doesn't matter how fit you are or what your age is. The compression breathing is where you're trying to force that extra air into the pores of your lungs to help, you know, increase uh, the oxygen blood saturation. It's probably something that you guys could look up on YouTube, I suppose. But uh, so we were basically doing that. And as we kept climbing and ascending, we would sort of increase the uh, amount of compression breathing that we were doing. And then we got to um, what's called Disappointment Cleaver, which didn't realize how dangerous this spot was, but things kept getting more and more dangerous as we kept moving along. So Disappointment Cleaver is basically a, a loose rock face that you're zigzagging up, and you have to what's called short rope. That's where instead of you know the lead climber in front being you know 50 feet uh, ahead of me, and then, of course, the anchor man behind me being about 50 feet behind me, giving you that sort of reaction time to, to pick up if someone were to start sliding, you would um, short rope. So you're taking these coils up over your chest and you're basically about five feet apart from each other as you're sort of walking along with your ice axe and your summit pack and your, your crampons and sort of stumbling on all this loose rock. Well, the path itself is about a foot wide. And again, it's still dark and it's, the winds are picking up a little bit. And off to your right hand side is about a 3000 foot drop. And if one of the guys were to fall, he's basically going to yank you and then yank the other guy, and, and you're done. So you have huge trust in your climbing partners on that, oh, and yeah. it's just a very dangerous part of the climb. And, and we wanted to get off that spot as quick as we could, but we wanted to do it as safe as we could. And uh, not only are you worried about just falling over the edge there, but um, you have loose rock that's falling above you. So you're quite concerned about you know any sort of rock coming and striking you or you know, making you lose your balance and falling. So once we got through that hard part and that dangerous part, um, we got to the top of Dis Disappointment Cleaver and the sun had uh, started to rise because we were going so slow. Uh, at that point, we were right around probably 12,500 feet and we still had to gain another 2,000 feet because the summit being right around 14,400 feet, we still had quite a bit of ways to go. And it's just slow going. And so... Um, you know, you're constantly trying to s determine, okay, well, it being sunrise right now, how much more how much more time will it take us to gain 2,000 feet? How much time on the summit? And then, of course, we got to come back down. And so you're just trying to make all those decisions because um, it wasn't something I was particularly concerned about. But those snow bridges you cross when the sun's down, um, the snow weakens as soon as the sun hits it. And those snow bridges that you're crossing on the way up could collapse on the way down. So that's stuff that we were, you know, trying to consider. And, uh, you know, we were basically following the same trail all the other guided uh, services were following. And 
basically making our slow zigzag up the mountain. I would say when we got to about 13,000 feet, I was pretty dead tired and I just wanted to quit. (laughs) I didn't really want to go anymore. The winds had picked up. They were about 30 miles an hour at this point. Keep in mind, when we left the valley at 85 degrees uh, the day prior, it was probably closer to 20 degrees now with 30 mile an hour winds. So there was definitely a wind chill factor. At that point, we were getting our puffy jackets out and, and just trying to get a little bit warmer because you're, you're still pretty warm as you're moving. But if you stop for a second, you know, you're going to cool down really quick. And we had um, got the puffies on, ate a quick bite, drank some water. That's the other main thing is altitude sickness suppresses appetite and thirst. So you constantly want to force yourself to eat and drink water. <clears throat> and so I was doing that, just kind of following along with the instructions. And we kept climbing. And, uh, oh, man, I was just dead tired. And uh, George, he had only made it uh, to about 12,500 feet. Uh, on his first attempt before he got altitude sickness. So we were pretty happy. No one was really feeling any signs um, of altitude sickness. We continued our compression breathing, making our way on up. And I think we got to right around 14,000 feet. And I think at that time, I told Jeff, I turned to him, we were stopped for another break. The wind was picking up again even more, probably 35 mile an hour at this point, maybe 40, and even colder out. And it was later in the day too. At this point, it was probably probably 9 a.m. And there was already guided tours going back down the mountain. And so uh, I told him, you know, like, I don't really care about somebody. And this was a great trip. <laughs> I, uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, but I'm ready to go back down. This is just this is just um, a grind and a half. And uh, and I've done some very extensive workouts. I did crew uh, men's rowing in, in college. And, um, you know, we we were just beat to death in that. So th- this really, I think, took took the spot for probably the hardest thing I had done just because of probably lack of training, uh, physically. And of course, you know, uh, just the elements that you're, you're facing up there. So Jeff's like, no, 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 look, we can keep going. You know, it just, we're almost there. Let's just go another, you know, hundred yards. And so we get up, we walk another hundred yards and we lay down and we're like, ah, we're done. He just, he was the leader. I'll tell you that. He just kept pressing us on and saying, you know, look, we're almost there. We're almost there. And uh, I couldn't believe it. We finally get to the crater rim. And I was just ecstatic. I was like, okay, good. We made it. Awesome. I'm hungry. I'm completely exhausted. I'm thirsty. So Jeff's like, all right, let's sit down right behind some of these rocks here in the crater, tuck out of the wind, and uh, eat some food. So um, we start doing that. And I took my glove off for just like maybe two seconds to just to get, I don't know, a zipper open or something. And God, my hand froze. <laughs> put my glove back on and it took like 10 minutes to get that hand warmed back up. And I was quickly realizing how dangerous and what an extreme condition we were in because at that point being at the crater rim, if for some reason you couldn't get back down the mountain, I mean, if, if you were struggling being hot from, you know, climbing, uh, and, and, and trying to, trying to stay hot, I should say, um, you know, if you had to stay overnight up there, I don't know if you'd make it in, unless you had a shelter and your sleeping bag and all that stuff. And, and of course, you're only going up for the day. So you leave all that at base camp. So um, probably something I'd bring again, I'd probably bring a sleeping bag if I ever went to the summit again, uh, just for survival, you know, caution. But man, I couldn't imagine making it overnight up there.
The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. Phoenix Multisport is a sober, active community that supports individuals who are healing from substance use disorder by providing free programs to help them maintain their sobriety. A few of these programs include CrossFit, yoga, boxing, cycling, and rock climbing and are offered to anyone who is 48 hours clean and sober. Phoenix Multisport provides programs in Colorado, Orange County, California, and Boston, Massachusetts. For more information on this nonprofit, go to www.phoenixmultisport.org. Together, we can help individuals rise from the ashes of their addiction and heal families. Well, we're at the Crater Rim, and I thought we had done it, but we didn't. Um, Jeff said, hey, you know, the, the highest point of the mountain is actually across the Crater Rim. So we have to traverse the center of the crater. And I was like, Jeff, well, how much time is that, and how long is that? Like, I'm already dead tired, you know. And he says, it's about a quarter mile traverse through the center, and uh, you get to the other crater crater wall on the other side. And then uh, it's about another 400 feet elevation gain, I think, from there to the actual true highest point of the mountain. So, um, you know, we're all roped in at this point still. And I, I think what we ended up doing was we ended up dropping our packs and our rope because you didn't have to be roped in on the, on the crater. Um, and we start walking through the center of the mountain. And I just was in awe. I'm like, I thought that this was like a hump, you know, like you get to the top of the mountain. But, you know, sure enough, no, it's a volcano. And I'm walking through the center of this mountain and I just couldn't believe it. And it's just, it's just amazing. And there's no wind in there. And, you know, you see little steam vents here and there, of, you know, cause it's sort of all active and, um, we're just walking our way to the other side and they had the summit registry there and it was in the sun. And, you know, we, we, we met another group there and, um, took some pictures and, uh, signed in. Uh, and then we, we made our trek up to the true summit. And at this point I'm like, just grinding right now. And I just couldn't believe I was still going up and we get to the summit and it was about 45 mile hour winds and it was probably 13 degrees out. So I don't know what that converts to for wind chill factor. That's darn cold. It was very (laughs) cold. We took, I don't know, maybe five photos at the summit before our cameras froze. And I think we spent maybe five minutes at the true summit and then we headed back down, um, to basically where the summit registry was kind of hung out there for another 30 minutes talked to another group that was sort of coming up and then we went back to the other crater uh, rim at the other side traversed back through the volcano and got our gear back and we were basically ready for our descent at that point i think it was around 11 a.m at this time and i was still kind of concerned because it had taken us if you figure from say probably around 1 30 in the morning to Oh, I don't know. We reached the summit around maybe 10 in the morning, 9 or 10. So that's a long time. You know, we were really going slow. So if we were going just to slow down, um, you know, 
that was going to be problematic because the snow would have been on the, the sun would have been on the snow basically all day. Right. So do our descent. And so basically we get our gear on and I knew a lot of accidents, disasters start on the descent because you're already fatigued. And believe me, when I realized I was at the summit and I had just spent all that time and all that energy to get to the summit and I looked down and I was like, well, hell, I have to go all the way down. Nobody's carrying me down. I was just pretty devastated because the amount of energy I just expanded, I didn't even know if I had that much in my reserve tank. So I was a little worried. Um, You know, you're drinking your water bottles in your pack, but it's basically frozen water almost. Um, The guys didn't really want to stop to try to tuck away and melt more snow or heat water up. We just wanted to get off the mountain. So we all decided we were going to go slow and steady. And and, uh, the main thing is you want to make sure that a slip doesn't turn into a slide uh, because that could be very dangerous. It it becomes harder to stop somebody and all that momentum on rope uh, trying to self-arrest once they basically, you just start accelerating, you know, at any point. And, um, you know, you drop one thing on that mountain, it's just going to slide down, you know, forever, it seems like, or drop into a crevasse and you're never going to get it again. So, um, you're, you know, you're looking down this mountain and, and, uh, you know, it looks gorgeous, you know, probably from anywhere else in Washington, but when you're up there and it's freezing and the wind's blowing and you realize you have like no energy and your water's half frozen and you have like a little bit of food left, you're, you're really feeling the, uh, extreme environment that you're in and, and you realize what you're subject to at this point. And you're making your way down and, you know, you're starting to, to see things you didn't see before because, of course, it was dark the whole time. And you're walking on the snow and the snow, of course, was frozen at one time. And now, now it's soft and it's slippery and it's mushy and, and you're crossing these snow bridges um, that might be a foot wide. And, you know, there's a 200 foot crevasse um, underneath Ooh, it. Crazy. And, you know, this the snow is starting to give way and um, you're... You know, you're you're making sure every foothold counts, and um, it becomes progressively easier to lose your balance. You know, when those stabilizer muscles in your legs aren't there to catch that weight shift, uh, or the wind blows you, or something, or you make a turn and you're stepping over the rope, or you know something, and and uh, you're just you're you're really alert, but at the same time, there's not a whole lot you might be able to do if if uh, you you do that slip. You know, you you'll give it everything you have, but it's just still. Um, you know, you don't want that to happen. And so we're making our way down and we get back to disappointment cleaver again. And the oddest thing was there was still a party of three working their way up the mountain. Wow. And we were very concerned because it was already so late in the day. Basically, no one else is going up that mountain. And if these guys had any kind of problem, they're going to have to stick it out overnight. And uh, there wouldn't be probably any rescue until later because... You know, it takes some time to figure out there's a problem and um, it would take some time to get, you know, climbers back up there to help. And, uh, you know, that was one thing that we really liked when we were climbing with, you know, when we were kind of in the vicinity with uh, climbing with those other guides was if, you know, we had a problem, there's still people up on the mountain to kind of help. But uh, at this point, you know, they were sort of on their own and we were sort of on our own. And um, we get back to Disappointment Cleaver, we're, we're up at the top of it. And again, it was a dangerous spot. You're going down this loose rock that's falling and the path is so small and the drop is so great you know you're just scared to death and you know the whole time i'm thinking man like was this smart of me to do you know was uh 
you know, what what if I died up here? Like, I don't know. Uh, was that selfish of me? You know, you start having those thoughts. And, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know if I should have ever taken this on or was I in the right physical condition or, you know, and so all those thoughts are entering your mind and, and um, you know, your footwork becomes a lot more sloppy. I started to almost sort of roll my ankles on a lot of these loose rocks and, you know, trying to prevent that from happening. And, um, man, we just kept working our way down the mountain. And, um, of course the temperature started to rise, which I was just so thankful for. I mean, it, it went, started to get in probably the 20 degree range and the 30 degree range. And you can even feel every breath you take, you can even feel like that extra oxygen as you get, as you descend lower and lower. It just, it feels better. You feel less worried, more secure, you know, of, of, you know, getting back to camp safely. And, um, you know, we kept working our way down and finally we get to the bottom of Disappointment Cleaver and you're just so thankful that that extremely dangerous part of the climb is over and now you're about to get onto more glacier and cross Ingram Flats Glacier yet again and uh, be subject to the ice field yet again. And, um, you know, it, it was funny because it, I didn't expect it, but there was different spots on the mountain going over these glaciers that were like Everest where they have these aluminum ladders that are, you know, anchored in. And you're walking across these aluminum ladders that are, you know, going over, say, a 40-foot crevasse or a 100-foot crevasse. And you're balancing and walking over, the, you know, these these ladders just like in the movie. And you kind of feel like a, an action action star uh, at some point on that. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and sometimes when you even say 40-foot crevasse, it's like, oh, that's no big deal. But, you know, it's like, okay, well, if you're on top of a 40-foot building – and I was like, okay, well, just no safety gear. Just go ahead and step over to this other 40-foot building. You know, uh, the danger is, is very real, and, and, it, and it really kind of brings it in, in, into a light. And, and so, yeah, that's essentially what it is. You're basically stepping over a 40-foot building to another 40-foot building or over a 200-foot building. And it is, you know, somewhat nerve-wracking. And, and so we, we, we did a lot of that on the Ingervats Glacier. And... We had some rock fall and we had some parties in front of us that we had seen walking along the trail and, and um, you know, it, it, they started running because they, they saw some rock fall, you know, and, and they couldn't see where it was and we could and we knew they were out of harm's way, but, you know, God, these guys are running for their lives. Uh, and it's hard to move when you're dead tired, I'll tell you that. Um, but we finally got back to Camp Mir at, I think it was like around 5 or 6 p.m. And at uh, this point... <sighs> You know, we were just, I was just dead tired and I just went into my tent and into my sleeping bag and we just decided we were going to take a little cat nap for about an hour and, um, and then make our final descent to paradise. Well, most people, I didn't know this yet, but most people will do the, the mirror climb and, or I'd say Mount Rainier, they would climb it in three to four days. And some guided tours will even do five days. And we were trying to bag this mountain in two days and, um, <laughs> you know, the exertion of uh, energy and lack of sleep are all going to be elements in that sort of uh, ambitious plan. And so we're at Camp Mir. I take my little cat nap for an hour. And, you know, you get all unroped and out of your harness and you strip down and you just, just lay out like a limp noodle. <laughs> and let's see. Um, Jeff wakes up and he's like, all right, well, we got to get back down to the car. So we got to pack up our gear and, you know, make some more food and, and whatnot. And I didn't realize this, but... I was using a titanium pot because I was trying to save some weight, and I had brought, I don't know if I brought kerosene fuel or white gas, but I brought, I'd say, 12 and a half ounces of fuel, and it was just for myself, 
and Jeff and George sort of had their own camp gear and, and they were kind of making all their own water and they had all their own food. And I remember I was teasing Jeff in the beginning for bringing these Subway sandwiches and this huge bag of Snickers and he had all this different food and I just thought he was kind of down bringing all that extra weight and you know I was very planned out and I had my emergency rations and I'll tell you what I ate through all my emergency rations I had burnt all my fuel out and I basically was down to one liter of water no food no fuel no energy and I think I had consumed most of that water I was trying to ration it but I had consumed most of that water on the descent uh, from Mir. And the guys, Jeff and George, didn't want to take any time to get their stove out and set all that up again and make more water. And I was basically climbing down the mountain, I don't know, it was around 6, probably 7 or 8 p.m., started to get, starting to get dark again. And I was getting really dehydrated. And my feet were just killing me. And, um, you know, these guys are cruising down the mountain. They wanted to get back to the car. And uh, it's probably going to take a good three, four hours to get back down from Mir to Paradise, and God, he, uh, they were just zooming down the mountain, and I was just struggling, you know, and they, I think, ended up drinking some glacier water, I was a little concerned, of course, I was just in the hospital for a week, Oh man! Uh, with, I don't know whether I had Giardia, Cryptosportia, or whatnot, but um, I definitely didn't want to en- entertain that option again, so I, I forwent the glacier water, was that completely out of water, food, energy, fuel, everything, and... I, I was just walking through the snow and fumbling around. It was getting dark out. And um, we I got to, I think, Paradise has got paved, is, is a paved trail for about a mile or so. And I think when I finally got all the way down the Mir snow field and you know, through all these different uh, sectors of, of, of the Mir climb, it was, I think, around 10 p.m. at night. And my feet, I couldn't, I couldn't walk in my boots anymore. I ended up taking my boots off and I ended up taking my socks off and I'm carrying this 55 pound pack. It was probably a little bit lighter than that <laughs> with, uh, you know, walking barefoot, having just been subject to climbing for basically the last 40 hours. Um, and I walked the blacktop one mile barefoot all the way down to the parking lot. <laughs> and, um, Oh, I couldn't believe it. You know, we finally got down and I was, I just couldn't believe that's what it took. It just took everything in me, you know, sleep deprivation and energy levels and just my body was just falling apart. And when we got into the car, I think I just fell asleep. I got home probably around midnight, got to bed around one and uh, I think I slept the entire next day. And then <laughs> so- I scheduled a massage, I think on Tuesday. And I didn't work all week, I don't think. And my other buddies, they went back to work. And then we got all our pictures together and we met at a bar and we exchanged photos. And we just, you know, it was just an experience and a half. And, you know, the summit, I, I, I didn't really, I still, to this day, I did, I could care less that I summited. It was more about the preparation, climbing, you know, you know, trusting, you know, your other, you know, members in the party and, um, just the experience up and the experience down and, um, you know, utilizing all your gear and your knowledge, you know, that's really what it was for me. And of course, every time, you know, people are like, oh, you climbed Rainier? I'm like, yeah, and they're like, you summited? I'm like, yeah, you know, like, I, I don't really care if they ever ask if I summited. But, um, you know, I guess that that's, that's fun to have that in the bag as well. But that is the Rainier story. It was very dangerous. It was very hard. And um, wow, I don't know. That <laughs> that's a tough one. Yeah, beautiful narrative. I I didn't want to jump in there because you were just taking us through it step by step. And 
You know, that story, I think, gives people more of an appreciation for what the big mountain mountaineering is really like. And thanks for all the detail. I, I was there with you the whole way. <laughs> that was yeah. that was great. You know, I do want to do Rainier. I don't think I want to do it as fast as you did. You guys were were tromping around for really twenty four hours. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was more, yeah, more around forty eight hours because we were climbing up Mirror on day one, and um, you know we were up around four in the morning, and then we went to bed. Oh, I, we tried to go to bed around seven p.m. that day, and then uh, you know we were up again at about midnight or, or so. And then we didn't get back down for another 24 hours. So, yeah, it was more around, you know, 30, 35 hours of, of solid work, you know, and that that's a lot. <laughs> so. That is. That's, you know, I heard from ultra distance uh, athletes that it's not as much about the distance you cover as it is about the amount of time that you're exerting yourself. So some people are faster than others. But mm-hmm. in the end, you know, if everyone goes 24 hours... It, that's exhausting. I mean, that's the equivalent of doing multiple marathons. So yeah, that's, yeah, it, it, it was. And, and, and you're talking so marathons are you know typically flat or whatnot, but then you add weight to that, and then you add incline to that, and you know that that was the other thing. I I only calculated burning six thousand calories a day, and when I found out later in a mountaineering book, you know you, you typically can burn up to twelve thousand. I was like, well, that's, that's where my food went, <laughs> and the water thing. Yeah. Man, I, I did a episode recently on climbing Parnassus this winter, and I got dehydrated because my water froze. Yeah. It was just my own lack of experience again. My water froze, and so I ended up being 11 hours on one liter of water. Oh, jeez. And uh, on the way down, I mean, I was there with you when you were talking about that. On the way down, my blood got so thick that it wasn't delivering oxygen to my muscles anymore correctly. You know, you're panting for air, and you say, what's wrong with me? And you realize, well, the blood's just not moving fast enough. Yeah. You know, that's a scary thought, but that's what happens. You know, they say, uh, oh, I forget what the stat is, but just a little bit of dehydration can impact your performance by a very large percentage. Yeah, I think it's um, when you become 2% dehydrated, it impacts your fitness by like 30% or, or, or more. Yeah, it's something like that. that. That it it's really basically is. when you when you have the urge uh, of, of of feeling thirsty, you're already two percent dehydrated. Yeah. And so, and I'll tell you what: drinking ice cold water when you're thirsty is a horrible experience, oh, especially when you're cold. You know, like the last thing you want to do is try to just gobble down just ice cold water when you're cold. You know, you'd rather just you know, have some warm water or tea or something. But, you know, and then, of course, when you're walking, you hear all this running water in the glacier, you know, just like, just teasing <laughs> you, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I can sympathize for you there with the uh, being dehydrated, definitely. Well, the funny thing is I've climbed a lot of mountains in the wintertime, and I've done it in very cold conditions, but I'd never had a water bottle freeze. So it had something to do with how my pack didn't insulate as well as what I had used previously. Or something. So I was just really surprised. But the water froze, and that was that. And that's a kind of unexpected thing that can happen. So yeah. anyway, beautiful story about Rainier, John. I, I appreciate you sharing that with me and with our listeners. Um, man, you took us there. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. We got a lot of photos, and we got a video we made. So, I mean, if I could post some of those. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, definitely is just way more dangerous than I thought. You know, just going up a mountain and coming back down, there was just so many elements of danger, you know, uh, <laughs> that, yeah. 
It's kind of surprising, isn't it? It is. You know, I you know, hear people, oh, yeah, I climbed it. You know, okay. Well, that's really all you hear. You don't really hear about, um, you know, going over ladders and the crevasses and the fall <laughs> and the darkness and the wind and the cold. You know, that, that, that kind of gets left out, I think. So trying to trying to add that back in. Well, it's important that people realize it's not for the faint of heart. It's not a small one. So no, that's cool. no, exactly. Well, John, we have a lot of other things that I would like to ask you here, but sure. we're also running short on time. So maybe we can have you back on again to talk more about what drives you and, and how you incorporate adventure into your life and why you do the things that you do like this. But will you close this out with a, an inspirational story? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh man, that's the one I left blank. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I would just say this, that, um, you know, I look around and especially at the youth and I'm 32, so I, I, I count myself as young, but you know, I'm, when I say youth, I mean, you know, any kid that's capable of playing outside uh, or playing video games. And, and when I see a lot of kids just in the video game world and just, uh, you know, on Facebook and, and doing all this sort of, uh, just tied into the technology, it just, uh, I just have such an appreciation to get outside and just to be, um, in nature playing with my two kids and kind of taking them, taking them into that lifestyle because, you know, I, I don't know how beneficial video games are for people, but, um, you know, they're, I just feel refreshed anytime I come back from a trip. I, I feel tired, I guess, from physical exertion, but I feel refreshed mentally. And, um, you know, that's something that I want to be able to give to my kids. And, um, you know, that's, that's what I like to do in my spare time. And so I just hope that, you know, whether, whatever my kids pick, I hope that they would still enjoy, you know, going out into the woods or into the mountains or hiking along the river or sailing, you know, doing anything outdoors, uh, with me and, and, and my wife. Yeah. And parents, I hope you heard that. Get your kids out. You know, it's okay for them to live in a technology world like we do, but we can't let that replace touching nature. I mean, there have been entire books written on nature deficit disorder with children and how important it is. And um, episode 40 with Bruno Lutz, I have to mention that one for any of you who have kids and you want to know what's what's a good way to incorporate them into an outdoor lifestyle and some adventure sports. Um, listen to that one. And thanks for that reminder, John. You know, it matters it matters to get out, reconnect with nature, and uh, it does rejuvenate the mind, and it makes your body healthier, too, even if you are tired. So, yeah, good words, man. Absolutely. All right. Well, John, thanks again for being on the show. Um, if people want more information, is there a way that they could contact you? I would say the easiest way would probably to send me an email uh, to uh, jdmcorp at hotmail.com. Uh, they can definitely shoot me any questions they have there. So that's J-D as in David, M as in Mary, corp at hotmail.com. Correct. Cool, John. Thanks very much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks for having me. You bet. And to all of our listeners out there, until the next show, do get out there and have some fun and take your kids with you. Definitely. Hey, college students, thank you very much for going to adventuresportspodcast.com, clicking the Contact Us button, and we'll make it worth your while to help promote the Adventure Sports Podcast on your campus.